1: Astonishing Legends would like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Best Fiends, Squarespace, Mint Mobile, Miller High Life, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
2: Robert Rackstraw, Kenneth Christensen, Sheridan Peterson, Lynn Doyle Cooper, Dwayne Weber, Joseph S. Lockage, William Gossett, John List, Ted Mayfield, Richard Floyd McCoy, Barb Dayton, just a dozen of the people on the list of hundreds of DB Cooper suspects, each one with at least one bit of compelling information pointing the finger at them. It's hard to know where to begin when diving into the topic of part two of our series on Mr. Cooper, if that is his real name. And we're leaning away from a six-part series on it, so tonight we're going to do our best to give you that 10,000 foot view, a carefully planned metaphor of all the players and, to the best of our ability, leave you with the information you need to make your own suspect list. There are so many questions to weigh. The obvious ones, like, Who was D.B. Cooper? Why did he do this? Where did he go after he jumped out of that 727? What was his motive and opportunity? Was he a master planner or just a mediocre one who got lucky? Did he have military experience? Was he a career criminal or con man? Or just another civilian who snapped and pulled off one of the greatest heists in history? We'll look at all of that while being respectful to those who've been neck deep in this for decades. This is not our first rodeo on an investigation with this much interest in it. And we've learned the hard way that Johnny-come-latelys can ruffle some feathers. But sometimes it's good to have fresh eyes on something we may not have the benefit of years of research on this particular topic. Still, we do have almost 200 episodes of shows with many on similar topics, and that gives us the unique position of having seen what these types of investigations look like. The sociological patterns of behavior among researchers and mysteries like this are often quite similar, and can inform the legend's overview. Tonight, we'll do our best to talk further about the aftermath of Mr. Cooper's departure from Flight 305 and represent as many theories on suspects as we can fit into just a few hours. So let's jump into the void and see what we can find. Scratch that. We had too much information. Tonight, we'll talk about the investigation. Next week, which was supposed to be dark, we'll release a commercial-free bonus final part on the suspects.
3: Welcome back to Astonishing
2: Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Take this down. I want $200,000 by 5 p.m. in cash. Put it in a knapsack. I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes. When we land... I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff, or I'll do the job. Dan Cooper to flight attendant Florence Shafter on November 24th, 1971. Join us tonight for part two of three in our series on the infamous skyjacker, D.B. Cooper.
3: And we're back and quite frankly gobsmacked. Oh, what country is that? Are you no, no, somebody there? Is it
2: Craig Ferguson? Yeah, no, it's a bad me impression. Oh, okay. It's nobody, so you can't say I, I do a terrible impression of whomever. Well,
3: I tell you what, we are gobsmacked. I I felt like that was the right word to say there. I got to be honest. I never dreamed we would raise this much, but thanks to your orders of the charity t-shirts for the Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department 2020 UFO Festival, which of course officially never happened, we have raised... Nearly a whopping $7,000 for them. I honestly can't believe it. I figured we'd raise a few hundred, maybe a thousand, but you people have gone above
2: and beyond. Wow, that's fantastic. You know, it really touches our hearts to know how great our listeners are, and you folks should know that you've done a good thing here. Listen to what our friend, guest for the Kexburg Show and director of the UFO Festival, Ron Struble, said when we told him how much was coming his way. Hey, Ron?
3: Yes. We've been looking at our numbers on those t-shirts. I kind of can't believe it. As of yesterday, it was $6,800.
0: Holy mackerel. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh, Yeah.
0: This is unbelievable.
3: Our listeners have uh, really came through. They've just been buying them like hotcakes. We're going to announce them, uh, that they're on sale one more time here this week in the show that's going up this weekend. So we may sell a few more of them. But uh I just wanted to let you know that you're gonna have that money coming in and uh by the middle of October.
0: Unbelievable. I can't thank you enough. Honest to God. This is like a godsend.
3: <laughs> it's Jeez. our pleasure. And we, you know, we wanted to and I think our listeners too wanted to help you guys out this year, especially having to cancel the festival and everything. So we, we hope you guys can put it to good use. Oh
0: my God. Can't thank you enough for reaching out to us and getting us involved and this is fantastic. Thank you.
3: That's all on you, folks. You really made that happen. So thank you on behalf of Ron Struble and the Kexburg Volunteer Fire Department, and also thank you for showing the world how great our listenership is. You really never cease to amaze us.
2: Yes, and that shirt will be on sale until October first. But after that, we're ending the first and what may be the only run for it. So if you haven't gotten one yet and want to get one, you still have a week or two here. So visit bitdo slash Kexburg shirt and kecksburg shirt is all one word right scott that's it's, right yes k-e-c-k-s-b-u-r-g and how else you would you spell Kexburg? E one more time visit bit.do slash kecksburg shirt kecksburg with a u or just go to com, click on store, and you'll find it there too.
3: On another note, and something we don't mention often, we wanted to say a very heartfelt hello to the nearly 12,000 people now in our private Facebook group, as well as the almost 20,000 following our main Facebook page. We are humbled by the interest in the show. So we, we really wanted to thank you guys, and not to mention all our followers on Instagram and Twitter as well, which is all about
2: in the same range. It's probably all the same. people. I don't know. Indeed. And our hats off in fond respect to our admins who keep both of those places, well, all the places really, wonderful groups to be a part of in a time where that can be hard to find online. So thanks team for that.
3: Okay, on to some other very important news. We are coming into the spooky season and we need to get ready. We were supposed to be dark the next two weeks, but we had so much DB Cooper stuff to talk about that we made that series a three-parter so that third part's going to come out next week with no commercials because we didn't have time to put any in there so you guys can enjoy that uh then we'll be dark the week after that and returning with the first of three shows in
2: a row for october however that's not the only thing that's happening for october In fact, some things are changing here in the home offices, and those changes are all rolling out by the morning of October 1st.
3: Yeah, a lot of stuff is happening, and October seemed to be the time to do it, because, well, we started the show back in October 2014, and now it's going to be six years old, if you can believe that. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, But we thought maybe it
2: was time to uh, spruce up the place a little
3: bit. The curtains are getting kind
2: of tattered. All right, that's it. That's all we're going to say for tonight. But keep an ear on the Astonishing Legends feed during these dark weeks, these dark weeks, for a special announcement from us explaining things. It's really too much to go into here. So make sure and stream or download the brief announcement that will likely drop very close to the end of the month for subscribers. Yeah, that's funny you should say. You know what's kind of crazy? No, what is crazy? I don't think we ever tell people to subscribe to the show. Is that is that dumb? Should we be doing that? Does it matter? I mean, is it Apple? Are we going to shoot up the Apple charts? I know, yeah, happens? we're
3: still waiting for that hockey stick of growth. It's just been slow and steady, right,
2: since we started. Oh, go, go
3: ahead then. Yeah, just do it. Just hey. go ahead and subscribe. You might as well. If, yeah. If you, you
2: know, if you've been listening this long.
3: Yeah, if you've been listening a few times and you haven't subscribed, please go ahead and subscribe to Astonishing Legends wherever you get your podcasts, including but not limited to the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and... And just pretty much everywhere. I think we're everywhere. All
2: right. It's time now to free fall into the rest of the story of D.B. Cooper. I thought we wanted to go for that fast open. Not a lot of free fall time. You just pull it right when you jump out. It's a metaphor, you idiot. Renner and Stimpy. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you You idiot. idiot. That was
3: good. That was good. That's right. I haven't
2: seen that in... A billion years. 10,
3: 15 years. I oh, longer than that. I, it's We're back, older than you think, my friend. Or as I it know. says on the sundial, it's later than you think. Um, <laughs> well, we really had a lot we wanted to pack into this
2: episode. The legend of D.B. Cooper. What actually happened? The crime itself. That's like a quarter of the whole tale. The yeah. crime itself. Maybe it's a fifth of the whole story. And then the rest of it. The three-fourths or the four-fifths. Uh-oh, here we go. Stay with me here. Okay. Look, all the rest of this is the investigation, the speculation, the amateur sleuthing, and myths of popular culture and public imagination that came after it. That's all after the actual incident. Right. And that's what we're looking at here. So we initially thought like, okay, uh, we got a lot to say. Let's stamp off this part one here with really just the crime, the crime itself. Yeah. A little bit of leading into the investigation to set that up. So you, you kind of know what's coming, but the incident itself, as I said, in part one, not a whole lot went on. It kind of went off with, without a hitch. It's not like he had a three day hostage situation. It was pretty cut and dry because I think he took some people by surprise and he had it planned out enough that it did seem to go off without too much difficulty. Uh, He did luck out in a few places here and there. Nobody looked into his attache case before he got on, which that all changed, folks, after this one. Yeah. Let me tell you, that's a few things changed. A lot of stuff. About air travel after this. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, that that was certainly one of them. They're going to look in every bag now. But this whole mythos... The investigation, all the the amateur sleuthing blogs and the people who are looking into it, and it's still going on today, that is sparked by a relatively small incident if you think about it. It triggered something in people's imagination and in a way, maybe like a Robin Hood. But then again, he wasn't giving any of that to the poor, even if he had successfully lived through it. So it's not really like a Robin Hood thing, but that doesn't matter to a lot of people. The fact that he got away with it I think, captures people's imaginations.
3: Yeah, and I think the Robin Hood thing got a little perverted in the sense that at that point, it was just about sticking it to the man, like sticking it to the corporation, getting away with it. Whether or not they got to share in it, the fact is the big company lost it
2: and the guy (laughs) took it and he got away with it. You know, people have loved that since, you know, the outlaws of the Dust Bowl, Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde. There's something about that because, uh, one, it's exciting. People love true crime and they like to see occasionally, as long as they're not hurting too many people, for people to get away with it every once in a while. That's why car chases, people are glued to the TV sets. Well, this episode is a little like our own version of the Mandela effect because several listeners have already chimed in, thinking that we've already done this topic. Yeah, I saw that. was all over social media.
3: People were like, I could have sworn you covered this. But you know (laughs) what, though? A lot, here's the thing. Just type in DB Cooper into Apple Podcasts or whatever, and you'll see there are multitudes. And that's part of the reason this episode has got a lot of information in it. There's a ton of podcasts. There's podcasts completely dedicated to it, which we'll talk about this evening. And then there's some where it's just an episode, like Generation Y, our friends over there, they did the episode on it. You know, there's a lot of people been talking about it for a long time because it is, after all, an astonishing legend. But um,
2: <laughs> it's also the system that beats the system. Remember right. The old AT&T Pacific Bell, one of those, uh, the big phone companies, that's uh, what the guy was referencing and a follow-up note that you will get to much later. Yes. Just to bring people
3: back up to speed here on where we're at, we have a little bit of a timeline of events. This is uh, Tess did a a full timeline for us, which she does for every episode. It's awesome in the uh, research core in our posting group there. But uh, we wanted to take just the first part of it here just to remind everyone where we're at and put a little bit of perspective on everything. And thanks, Tess, for putting this together. So first date, February 21st, 1931. The occurrence mm. of the first acknowledged skyjacking in the world. Some Peruvian rebels demanded the pilot of a Ford tri-motor craft fly
2: over Lima so they could drop political leaflets. That was the first skyjacking. I mean, it's, yeah, it's littering, but it didn't seem that bad. <laughs> I, I, see, I thought it was the first time that the friend of the Wright brothers, the neighbor comes over, is like, okay, let me scoot over. Let me get on. Right, let me get right. on that thing. Yeah, that's it. I'm taking yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> no, no. No. The- It's one or two people. That's it. Get off this thing. It's not going to
3: fly. 30 years later, we had America's first act of air piracy, and Tulio Ramirez Ortiz holds a knife to a pilot's throat and points a gun at the co-pilot of a national airlines flight en route to Key West and demands to go to Cuba. Ortiz is arrested 14 years later. In Miami, trying to re enter the US. It took him that long to no, get back, what? I guess. And here's the thing that was 1961, but uh, through the 60s and 70s, that was what was happening with most hijackings. It was people trying to get planes to take them to Cuba. That was the big deal. I remember that as a kid. I mean, it was very yeah, young, yeah. but vaguely, I remember, oh, another plane. It was just one of the things, Like a plane was hijacked tonight and, you know, flew to Havana or whatever. So that was what was going on at the time. Again, this was a time when you could walk into an airport with cash, give them a <laughs> fake name and get on a plane without anyone even looking in your bag. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to talk about the Allen
3: Funt incident? We could mention that. I, I think I have okay. an open tab. I have 15 browsers, each one with 35 tabs open. I know he's in there somewhere. Yeah. We can do it later. Yeah. But it's very interesting and, and kind of funny. But first, because this was before mm-hmm. that, in 1965, this is interesting. I don't know how mm-hmm. she figured this out, but I guess it's because there's a lot out there about D.B. Cooper and aviation nerds. Northwest Orient Airlines purchases the Boeing 727 that D.B. Cooper would later hijack. And here's an interesting thing. I I was like, is Northwest and Northwest Orient? Is this the same thing? Well, it turns out it is. It was called Mm. Northwest Orient uh, for a couple of years because they were one of the first airlines to develop a travel corridor to Asia. And here's another fascinating thing. Since aircraft couldn't make the straight trip, it was too far, they would stop in the Aleutian Islands at Shemya. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but I think- Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, Shemya, S-H-E-M-Y-A, and refuel so they could make it all the way across the Pacific. Shimya is one of the westernmost islands in the chain of the Aleutian Islands or part of Alaska, which Sarah Palin Mm. can see from her backyard. And by the way, Mm. if you Mm. Google pictures of that place, it is amazing. You can still see the rusted old hangars and stuff that people uh, that were stationed there worked in. The U.S. Army had a base there, and then Northwest
2: had a refueling place there. Yeah, there was a battle there. With the Japanese. Oh, in Shimya? I didn't see. I didn't even find it. In those. the Aleutians. Yeah, right. it was a bad one. But I, I had a friend of mine, I know that because he went and shot a documentary there. Oh, cool. On Kiska Island. Okay. And there's a large fin that is a radar, uh, military radar installation that supposedly looks over the horizon. Oh, a specific interesting. tiny little northern part of a peninsula country.
3: Okay. Well, there you go. Okay, Well, I guess Shimya was, you know, it's pretty remote. It does look beautiful in the pictures, but uh, all the people that were stationed there called it the rock. And <laughs> surprisingly, yeah. one of our suspects was stationed in Shimya for almost four years. This is at a wow. time when most people that went there only stayed a year and got the heck out. So uh, yeah, now the, the next day in the timeline here is 1971, but let's take a little bit of a tangent, something that Forrest alluded to A few minutes ago, it turns out in February of 1969, a gentleman named Alan Funt was flying with his wife and his two youngest children on Eastern Airlines Flight 7, uh, which they boarded in Newark, headed to Miami. However, that plane did not get to Miami because a couple of guys hijacked it and demanded, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, passage Mm. to Cuba. But here's the thing about Alan Funt. A lot of our younger listeners probably not going to know who he was. He hosted a show called Candid Camera, which was a huge CBS, very popular show, and it was all about practical jokes. This was the original Punked. Some of you are probably too young to even remember Punk with Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> oh
0: dear! But
3: yeah. uh, it was it was the original hidden camera prank show. Hidden camera show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone is doing this now. You see it all the time. And I mean, Candid Camera had some really funny ones. One of my favorite ones was when they they built a car. I think it was a Volkswagen bug. I can't remember, but it was split down the middle and it Mm -hmm. drives up to a person at a gas station who's standing there and then it looks like it's about to hit them and they're freaking out and then it just splits in half and goes around them and reconnects. I mean, it's corny, but it was pretty funny to watch. There was a lot of really funny stuff. But the point is, Funt was the face of this. Everyone knew him. It's like David Letterman was late night talk guy. Alan Funt was like, there's a practical joke going on somewhere and you're part of it. And because he was on this plane, a bunch of the people on the plane were like, come on, this is not a hijacking. This is a joke. Where are the cameras? They recognized Alan Font they was saw on him. Yeah, they saw he was yeah. on the flight. They were all like, come on, we're not going to Cuba. And they wound up landing <laughs> in Havana. So Yeah, but imagine what the hijackers thought. Like,
2: what? no, no, this is really happening. No, look, we, we, take we, us seriously.
3: We, <laughs> we spent 30 minutes planning this. Come on. According to this uh, one blog that I'm reading about, this is dangerousminds.net. We'll have a link to it. There were 93 people on the flight, and it was the 12th hijacking of just 1969. The 12th wow. one. And that was February. That tells you how much hijacking was going on back then. It was a very
2: popular sport.
3: Well, one of the things that I had read was like, rather than uh, implementing security at airports, the idea that they were having, because most of these were to go to Cuba, was they were going to build a fake airport in far southern Florida to try to trick people to think that they were landing in Havana. So the idea was the pilots would pretend to go to Havana, then land at the fake Havana and then everybody would get arrested, I guess. But then instead, they decided, oh, maybe we should try security measures. So anyway, that's the Allen mm. Font story. Let's go back to our timeline. Uh, November 24th, 1971. This is when we get to our story. A uh, man identifying himself as Dan Cooper purchased a plane ticket from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. This is a 30-minute flight for $18.52 plus $1.48 in tax. It was a one-way ticket. Mm. He was asked if he was returning, and apparently he said, no, I will not be returning. He paid with a $20 bill. Now, this was a time when you didn't have to show ID or have your baggage x-rayed to get on a plane. Honestly, I feel like you could just run up towards the plane and throw some money on the ground and run up the (laughs) stairs, and they would be like, fine. Anyway, shortly after the uh, plane took off, uh, Mr. Cooper, if that was his real name, took Mm. control of it. It was only 30 minutes to Seattle, but he made his plans known. That he wanted uh, to offload people, get $200,000 in ransom, refuel, and take off again. And when a flight attendant asked him if he had a grudge against the airline, he famously supposedly said, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. That's my oh, Clint Eastwood. really? It wasn't great. Yes, but he did say that. Um, or he's quoted as having said that. And what's interesting about this is we did find one website that I'm going to be talking about later. I love it. It's got the handwritten notes from one of the crew members. They're not sure who it was, but it's all in the same handwriting probably one of the two flight attendants, probably uh, Tina Mucklow or Florence Schaffner, about everything that was happening, like shorthand notes. And uh, she wrote Mm. down some of the stuff that was said. The aircraft departed at 7.36 p.m. on the same day, of course, from Seattle under the control of Cooper uh, after rendezvousing with the stuff that he wanted 4 parachutes and money, which he wanted in a knapsack, but it wasn't delivered in one. We can talk about that later. Uh, Which made him mad. Knapsacks, by the way, were harder to come by back then. So that's the explanation there. But they probably also wanted to thwart his ability to just throw it on his back and do whatever he wanted with it, including jump out the plane. So as soon as the plane took off, he told uh, flight attendant Tina Mucklow to join the rest of the flight crew that was all the people that remained on the plane in the cockpit. She was also the one that retrieved the money for him at the bottom of the stairs while they were in Seattle. At 8 p.m., a cockpit light indicated that the aft staircase of the plane was being manually lowered from the inside. At 8.13, about 13 minutes later, <laughs> the plane's mm. nose
2: dipped. Excellent calculations, sir. Yeah. <laughs> and the crew
3: felt what they described as a pressure bump, which is kind of like when you roll the window, one window down in your car and it makes your ears go crazy and, or whatever, followed by a corrective adjustment in the tail. I'm taking mm-hmm. those exact words from uh, one of the books we'll reference tonight called The Last Master Outlaw by Thomas J. Colbert and Tom Zelosi. You think he's Colbert or Colbert? I've been wondering that uh, all through the I'm, research. I
2: think he's not that fancy. Yeah, I think he's Colbert. Nobody. He just, yeah, just Colbert.
3: Anyway, that's just bringing you back up to speed on the idea of, of where we're at before we get back into this mystery and the investigation. And
2: You know, I see uh, here, and uh, Scott has in the outline, the, the rest of the timeline here, but it's grayed out because apparently we're going to talk about all this stuff. But you know what? Really, he could just read the rest of this and we could be done. We can be done. <laughs>
3: which that's it Just go to bed well this is the stuff that happened after some of the stuff i thought we'd come to that later okay
0: as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check.
1: Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.
0: I'm James Copper, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
2: Well, should we pick up with the investigation continuing? Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's go back to
3: what's happening now, now that he's jumped out of the plane.
2: Well, there's a few things to consider here, because as we said, as soon as he jumped out, that was the end of him. Maybe literally, but certainly the end of everything that we knew about him to that point. And... What I mean by that is that uh, there was a few pieces of evidence, and there were a lot of unknown factors. So the FBI and local police authorities had a lot of difficulty in calculating where Cooper may have landed. The estimated search area would be based on an equation with many precisely unknown variables uh, throughout the flight path. Constantly changing things like wind direction and speed, the weather. There was a heavy rainfall falling over the area of the Lewis River when Cooper jumped, but exact weather conditions would vary depending on your altitude and horizontal location. And on top of
3: that, this predates GPS. There wasn't just a little thing you can
2: look down and it told you exactly where you were. That was not happening either for the aircraft or for Cooper when he jumped or landed. FBI detectives recreated Cooper's escape using the same 727 jet and with Captain William Scott flying the same pattern. But what the agents did is they fastened a 200-pound, or they put 200 pounds of weight on a sled, and then they pushed it out the aft air stair opening, and they got the jet to kick up its tail in the same way as experienced by the flight crew when they were in the cockpit. So then they noted that, okay, it's probably at 8.13 p.m. during the skyjacking, that's when they experienced that tail kick up there, and they had to adjust the trim, as you said.
3: Yeah. And by the way, I found some actual pictures on a site we'll talk about later. Of the sled, like, going out. Like, they have pictures of the of that whole thing. Yeah, it's amazing. This one website yeah. was just a treasure trove of stuff like that. But the other thing that's interesting about that is when they pushed that sled out, the crew on that plane, when the sled went out, they didn't feel the pressure bump that the crew described when Cooper jumped. Uh, which interesting. is interesting. I don't know why, but just another little
2: aside there. It's a good point you bring up here because... As much as you can try and recreate something, it's not going to be exactly the same, and you'll know what I'm talking about here in a
3: minute. Right. Another thing that I learned today was that the rear stairs came down with gravity, and because of the wind resistance, they don't think they came all the way down, but they came down enough that they could walk on them. They sent those two guys walked down Ah, to the end of it, but they weren't quite in stair formation. It was more like a
2: pointy gangplank. (laughs) But that's another interesting observation, because as we said in part one, and I wondered about this, it was around 8 p.m., sometime around then, when the crew, they got the warning light coming on in the cockpit, that the door had opened, but the actual tail kick up did not happen until 8.13.
3: Right, which means they surmised he was standing there staring out into the dark, into the clouds and the rain and the wind, trying to figure out when the hell to get out of the plane. And... I've gone
2: this far, might as well jump.
3: And also maybe wetting yeah. his pants. I don't know. It's uh, like, I mean, th- that's got to be the moment when you're just like, am I really doing this?
2: Yeah, you really feel alive, I'll bet. you just really <laughs> invigorated. That brisk, cold, wet, western Washington, drizzly 40 degrees on the ground, that kind of, yeah. And you're just, uh, it's just hitting you in the face. And I'll bet he just really felt alive at that point. Uh, uh, yeah. Maybe more so after he actually jumped. But yeah, it's, That's got to be a moment, folks. And you know what? Some people wonder, is that why he did it? Yeah. Is the reason for him going through this, not so much the money, but just to see if he could get away with it. Anyway, we'll get to that later. But yes, 813 was deduced as the most likely time for Cooper actually jumping. Another determining factor for Cooper's actual landing zone would be how long before he pulled the ripcord. That free fall time plus wind could significantly steer him and throw off the extrapolation estimates. You see what I'm getting at here? This is a big equation. There's a lot of different factors going on, which changes the outcome here. Entropy. This is like the physics class I accidentally signed up for at NC State
3: University. (laughs) (laughs) It was calculus-based physics. And it was, you know, up until then, you took physics, you threw the rock. All you had to know was how much the rock weighed, how far you were throwing it. But in, in this class, you had to know what the wind was doing, what specific <laughs> gravity of the earth at this point. But yeah. you just take, put all that stuff into the uh, mix. And then on top of that, the other thing to remember is that the shoot that he took was a uh, fast open, non-controllable shoot. It wasn't like right. the modern shoots you see where you can pull the cords and pick where you're going. It's a circle and it goes where God wants it to go.
2: There you go. Well, uh, hey, you know what? Some investigators believe he may have not have pulled the ripcord at all. And then... Well, where's his body? Where did that fall? Where's that money? Retrieving the money, again, that's a lot of money. They want to retrieve that if they can. And, of course, catch him if he lands and and gets away with it and lives
3: through it. Remember that I said earlier that he requested a knapsack. He wanted a backpack or something for the money, and they didn't bring Mm -hmm. that. They brought this, like, bag thing, so he didn't have a way to carry the money. One of the things that was thwarted about his plan was how to get the money off the plane with him. And that goes back to what we talked about in part one, about when Tina, shortly before she closed the curtain between first class and coach... To go up to the cockpit, she looked back and saw him tying cords on. He was trying to strap or tie the money yeah. in a way that he could take it down. And uh, there was some theory that he may have tried to open one of the other parachutes, take it out, because I think that it was uh, left behind on the aircraft. I, 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 yes, I don't,
2: don't get ahead of yourself. We're going to okay, get bye. to that. It's all, but it's he was putting the money in there. there. He's putting the money in that bag. Yeah. <laughs> He's putting it into something other than his socks. Yes. Well, listen, remember the Air Force pilots? Here's another fact. It's like all these little things that we mentioned in part one, that's why I kind of wanted to stress, and, and if I were a listener, well, if I were a listener, I wouldn't be listening to this show, certainly. But <laughs> if, I, if I were, then the idea, though, is that all these little things that we, we covered, and even here at the beginning of this part two, these things will be questioned and they'll be factored in later for an estimate and an idea and an extrapolation. And of course, another crackpot theory possibly or a good theory. We, we don't know yet. But this part here where the military pilots, the Air Force pilots did not see anything open up. Right. Was that because he didn't open the chute? Now, granted, it would be very hard for them to see anything in those conditions at night with cloud cover below them. Cooper, a, a, a black dress speck jumping out of the plane. So again, one determining factor is when did he pull that ripcord? And do you have
3: something about the radar at McCord coming up?
2: No, there's something that uh, you I can remember say. to do to say that.
3: Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, so I'm know. going to say that I read today <sighs> that the radar systems at McCord base, which was close by, would have been able to see him jumping out of the plane. They would have yep. on radar. Yeah, I mean. read that today. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but... Say that again. The radar would have picked him up. At the Air Force Base.
2: Okay, at the Air Force Base, but yeah.
3: not with the
2: uh I, I don't believe the fighter pilots no picked it up on their planes. Right?
3: I didn't right. see anything about that. Okay. And, and like you said, I haven't seen anything that suggested that any okay. pilots saw it jump, but they're saying that they might have been it might have had a radar signature with the radars that they had at the base.
2: Well, there you go. That's another
3: factor. Maybe he didn't pull the ripcord at all. There wasn't an implication about whether or not it would have picked him up, whether his chute was open or not. Like, I think right. it might have, right. because it's a projectile. I'm sure someone will email us, but like, you know, <laughs> it could be an incoming weapon. So I, I don't know what the sensitivity was in 1971 of the base's radars, but no, they, it, it, it seems depends. to be a suggestion that it might have picked him
2: up, whether his chute was open or not. As far as I know, it depends also on the material. It's like the uh, the Woblin' Goblin, the F-117 because of the shape, it's like, it doesn't disappear completely, but it shows up the size of a goose on radar. Right, And so that throws people off. Anyway, getting back to this, look, considering all the factors involved, investigators concluded at first that Cooper most likely landed in an area somewhere between Cowlitz County to the north and Clark County to the south, in southwestern Washington state, southwest of Mount St. Helens. Bigfoot country. Yes. Bigfoot country. More specifically, a few miles southeast of the very small town of Ariel, and south of the Lewis River and its dammed-up Lake Merwin. Since 1974, the Ariel General Store and Tavern has hosted an annual Cooper Day celebration. Except, I think not in 2015 because uh, sadly the owner died then. Oh, but, uh, yeah, it's and an ongoing maybe, maybe not this year. Oh, uh, probably not. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Everything's uh, we're not canceled. doing their t 2020
2: is canceled. No, <laughs> but
3: right. uh, it sounds like a blast. I would
2: love to go to this thing, actually. Just remember Bigfoot. It's going to come up later. Yes. Okay, so this area today, though, it's not as heavily wooded. It doesn't seem to be from the satellite photos as it was uh, just north of the Lewis River back then you know, more land is cleared. It certainly changes a lot. We saw that with the Bet sphere, how things and development can really change the landscape here. But back then, probably a little more wooded, a little more dense. It still is now, if you look at the satellite photos. And back then, as it is now, there were handfuls of farms around this area. I would guess probably fewer back then as well. Don't know. I didn't check. I'm just making an observation here. But uh, the idea is, uh, if he's going to land, you're going to have to look for an open patch of land, like a farm. Yeah. You don't want to do it in a thicket of 70 and 80 and 90 foot evergreens. No. Okay. Good way to break limbs. All kinds of limbs, but certainly it was probably a lot more dense in 1971. Well, boats searched the river and lake. FBI and local sheriff's deputies searched on foot. They went door to door. They used helicopters and planes. They patrolled overhead and nothing of Cooper was found at the time. Do you think... That means he died and they never
3: found his body or he survived and that's why there's no trace. When I hear that they did that massive search and they didn't find anything, yeah, my inclination is to think that he survived the jump. Because ah. the, I, I feel like the odds of jumping to your death and escaping that kind of manhunt with your chute tangled up and ropes everywhere and mm-hmm. hunters running around, I mean, I know it's a lot of land that nobody's ever on, but right. but considering the search, the aerial search and everything else, and all the calculations they did. It's my understanding that initially they were in the wrong area. They adjusted the search area by 17 miles later.
2: No, that's
3: the whole still, point of this
2: whole uh, You would whole think it's sooner or
3: later. I mean, even decades later, somebody would be like, oh, look, a
2: parachute. Oh, a skull. Uh, no, you should know better than that because uh, we're there's a, actually a sad uh, little side story that we'll get to that we'll, – illustrate my point okay how yes you can't scour every inch of everything now it this is quite an effort and i think maybe one of the largest if not the largest and most intensive manhunt in u.s history certainly uh but even then as we'll see some things get missed and we know this because of what was found later all right now, at the time, the Army National Guard out of Oregon also worked with the FBI in conducting aerial searches. The whole flight path, they searched everything from Seattle down to Reno, Nevada, and found nothing that's from the sky. If they didn't find any trace of him, well, he wasn't caring much with him. It's not like uh, he had those leaflets those guys uh, wanted to drop and they're all over the place, and those can be (laughs) tracked. If he didn't pull the chute, then he is basically a human-sized black lump in the middle of a very dense forest, maybe hung up in a tree. If he didn't pull the chute, yeah, yeah. Again, that's the point, is that there are so many variables here. It would be so hard to track anyway. Nowadays, a little easier. If they went right away and there was no cloud cover, they might be able to pick him up on thermal cameras, dead or alive, or at least for a little bit until his body cooled off unless he planned ahead. And I know that the military has uh, dark clad clothing that is supposed to trap in your body heat. So you're not picked up on thermal cams. And They have thermal uh,
3: back then, 71?
2: Good question. I don't know. They certainly didn't seem to have it then doing this search. Yeah. And I don't think he would have planned for that ne- necessarily. There are things that he didn't care about because it was 1971 or, or could even think of like the DNA. Okay. Yeah. He may have just taught all that other stuff he left on the plane, he could have just easily tossed out with him and left nothing. But at one point here, in March and April, in the spring of 1972, the FBI conducted a ground search with military personnel from the Air Force, National Guard, civilians, and about 200 Army soldiers. This went on in total for about 36 days, and they found nothing directly significant to Cooper. However, to your point, Scott, they may have been looking in the wrong place. Yeah. Later corrected calculations placed Cooper's actual landing zone closer to the Washougal River, some 25 to 30 miles south, southeast of the originally suspected area, and also possibly closer to the Columbia River. And there were other updated calculations involved, but two major ones were that Captain William Scott had reconsidered his flying path estimates. Captain Smith was ordered to fly low and slow by Cooper which means he had to take control manually, and later he estimated that originally he'd been flying much further east than he first thought. And the other consideration is that Tom Bohan, a Continental Airlines pilot, thought that the wind direction factored into the initial estimate could be off by as much as 80 degrees, and he figured this since he was flying behind flight 305 by only about four minutes during the hijacking.
3: Yeah. And just again, reminding people, it was pre-GPS, the the technique that airplanes used to navigate back then was called VOR, which stands for VHF Omni Range. And That consists of three components for that. There's a station on the ground, and those are spaced out that transmit radio signals that radiate out from like an o'clock pattern, and then an antenna on the aircraft, which receives the signal, and then an instrument in the aircraft that interprets the signal, and those are at certain Mm -hmm. frequencies. So that's how they navigated everywhere, and that's why it's less precise. So when you hear Captain Scott, you go, no, I'm not sure I was here or there. That's because this was way less precise than GPS and relied a lot more on um, the navigation skills of the pilots and co-pilots. Yes. So of course, one of the first things they're doing, aside from looking for Cooper, is they're also looking for the money. That should be easier to follow, right? Because whoever's got the money, whether it's Cooper or if he was a meat waffle, as I said in in part one, maybe somebody finds the money and they spend it. Well- Here's the story that is most frequently associated with how the money was uh, rounded up and how it was presented, and this is what you hear the most about this case. The FBI gathered the money up for his ransom on the night of the 24th of November, and they gathered it from several banks in Seattle, and he had requested, according to the popular lore, $200,000 in unmarked $20 bills. Force you have a note here that it was, may have been without sequential serial numbers. I'm not sure about that. I can't, I don't remember reading that anywhere.
2: I have a thought later on that we can discuss about that, but I'm not sure here. Yeah, that's why I made a note, is that part of fictional lore from the movies and TV is what everybody always asks for. Does it make a difference? Well, we'll talk about that later. Well, of course, what we know he wanted $200,000. Did he ask for denominations? Did he ask for uh, any numbers to be different? I think he probably may have said, don't make this obvious, don't mark them in any way, because he was thinking that way. He was savvy enough to think about that ahead of time. Well, here's what's interesting about
3: that. This And this is in direct contradiction to the most popular narrative about the money and how it was arranged and how it was provided. And I thought this was pretty fascinating. This comes from a website that is no longer up, which. Is one of Oh, the, those are the best. Yeah, it's one of the best websites on D.B. Cooper there is. And you see it referenced when you go into all the forums and you look at all the different websites that have information about D.B. Cooper. This was a website run by a gentleman who went simply by Sluggo. And <laughs> again, you, you can't doubt that. Yes, and the address was the tail number of the plane. It was n467us.com. Mm. HTTP slash slash n467us.com. It's not there anymore. But... Again, courtesy of the Wayback Machine, which is an internet archive site, I was able to find snapshots of it going back several months. Um, Unfortunately, the last full snapshot of it was about April of 2019. It looks like uh, somewhere near there or the month after that, it went down for whatever reason. It had been Mm -hmm. up a long time. Maybe he just got tired of it, but... When you find the archived version of it, it's great because the Wayback Machine archives, you can click all the links and drill down on them. And one of the pages has a great deal of information. It's got facts and myths about the case and everything is cited and cross corroborated with sources from where it came from. And this is what Sluggo site says about the money. It was not rounded up by the FBI. It was provided by Sea First Bank, which is now Bank of America. I'm reading directly from this defunct website now. The money had been earmarked for situations such as these and was always on hand. It had been photographed and serial numbers recorded by their security. So according to Sluggo's website, the FBI didn't do any of that. And I did read somewhere else that uh, they used a machine called a Recordac, which was uh, had to do mm-hmm. with, I think that was an Eastman, uh, Kodak Eastman product that was similar to what you would uh, use to capture microfiche or microfilm. Uh, Back in the old days. So the reality is the money was standing by for hostage and ransom situations. It was just there. The bank had it for that. And Mm. when they talk about it having been recorded, it was probably recorded a long time ahead of time. They put it together and recorded the serial numbers and they put it in a vault just in case something came up, A, a bank
2: manager got held hostage or whatever. So that's where the money came from. Yeah, I thought about, actually, again, from our audiovisual backgrounds and and film and uh, still photography backgrounds in the old days of film, I wondered... You can't photograph photograph that much money fast. Yeah, (laughs) there's no way. Because there's 10,000 bills. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So either you have to do it right then, and there is a machine that does that, which is possible that it would go through, but it's going to take a snapshot of each one. That's also 10,000 pictures. Yeah, it's a lot. But uh, yeah, I'll tell you later on that maybe the FBI or whoever photographed those, uh, Seafirst Bank, didn't get all the serial numbers recorded.
3: That's right. Well,
2: according to Sluggo's site,
3: the money was transported by Seafirst Bank security to a Seattle police detective who then drove it to the airport and handed it over to Northwest Airlines. The money was bundled in various counts so that no bundle was the same, Each bundle was secured by rubber band and different counts so that it appeared the money was hastily
2: gathered. This was an illusion. That's interesting. Okay, so you're saying here, now this will come up later, as important to the discovery of the money, you're saying these rubber banded bundles, rubber baby buggy bumpers, rubber baby buggy bumper banded bubble bumbles, say that three times fast, they are all of different counts. Yes. They are not
3: hundred bill stacks of 20s. According to Sluggo's website, they are put together that way to look as though they've been hastily gathered. Now, think about this. This makes sense. If you've set this aside for ransom money for a potentially bad situation, and you're trying to predict ahead of time what somebody might ask for. And one of the things that people might ask for is, like you said, non-sequential serial numbers or, you know, get this money together now. And if you don't want them to think that it can be easily traced, you might not want to present them with neatly, perfectly bundled, sequential-looking serial numbers, Right. Uh, everything bundled up the same way. So mm. it might be just to convince whoever's getting the money that
2: it's safe to spend because it was hastily gathered. <laughs> I guess if you're, yeah, if you're of that kind of not so smart criminal, I could see that happening. I mean, the other question is, did he specify denomination or that they just figured like, well, somebody's going to, they're not going to want big bills, like hundreds. You have to break those. I mean, I have trouble breaking those now at at small places. So 20s are much easier to spend. Is that what somebody's going to want to ask for?
3: Well, according again to Sluggo's website, Cooper never specified the denomination. So to that end, there's two things about that that are interesting to me. And by the way, everything I'm citing from Sluggo's website is connected back to uh, sources that it was gathered from. I'm not going into all those sources here, but we'll have the links to the Wayback Machines version of his website where you can check all that stuff out. But according to him, they they didn't specify – and I'm pretty sure this was taken directly from um, one of the flight attendants' handwritten notes, which are all up there. And there's a transcript of those in case you can't read them, and we have that. I downloaded that. We'll put that up with the show notes where you can actually read the notes that were taken by the flight attendants during the whole ordeal. Hmm. Apparently, he had just said, look, I want $200,000 in a knapsack. In one way, this kind of says maybe he didn't plan every little detail, because there's a mm. huge difference in weight between 200,000 and 20s or 200,000 and 10s, or whatever else, smaller the bill, the more the weight, or 200,000 and 100s, like you said, Forrest. But had he gone with 100s, he would have only had five pounds of money to deal with rather than 25. But as we said in part one, that weight isn't really a big deal to jump with. If you've got a knapsack, like he requested, but he didn't get a knapsack, which seemed like an intentional thwarting of what he wanted. Hmm.
2: So... Well, answer me about this bit of factoid here. It's often reported that as they recorded the serial number of each bill... They did manage to give Cooper serial numbers that started with the letter L, and that indicates that they were issued from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And most of the bills uh, were either of the date, the 1963A or 1969 issuance series date. Is that true? I think that's true. I haven't seen a whole lot to go against that, but you know what? For
3: our listeners that are interested in more information on this, I do want to recommend a podcast. It's called The Cooper Vortex, and this is uh, this is a show by Darren Schaefer and Russell Colbert. I, I don't know if there's any relations there, mm-hmm. but uh, it's been around since 2018. It's got, I, can't, I don't even know, 30 episodes or more. It is a mm. deep dive. It's all about Cooper, and, and in fact, their most recent episode that I'm seeing on Apple Podcasts uh, posted on September 6th is called D.B. Cooper's Money with Arthur L. Friedberg. Uh, Mr. Friedberg is a professional numismatist. I can never say this right. Numismatist. Numismatist. Numismatist? numismatist. Numismatist.
2: There you go. There you go.
3: Mr. Friedberg is a professional numismatist. Uh, thank you, Forrest, for correcting me on that and mm. hopefully for cutting out how many times I said it wrong. He's been doing this for 40 <laughs> years He has a B.A. in history from George Washington University and an MBA from NYU, and his family firm, the Coin and Currency Institute, is a founding member of the Elite International Association of Professional News... What was it, Forrest? Never mind. I know the word, but I just yes. – okay. anyway. I trust you. He talks about yeah, money. He knows about people money. People who like coins. What I can say is I was I was checking this podcast out earlier today, and I heard him specifically talking about the denominations of the bills and how many of them mm-hmm. were actually produced. One of the other things that was interesting that I heard him say was that they had a lifespan of about eight years, I think. And generally, that's when they started to deteriorate, and you wouldn't – so you wouldn't uh-huh. at this point find a lot more – In circulation. But anyway, you can obviously go there, the Cooper Vortex, check that out, and you'll hear, you can drill down on pretty much anything that we're talking about and a whole lot more that we didn't even touch on. But um, one of the things that, you know that he talks about is whether or not they match those denominations. I didn't find anything that goes against what you were just talking
2: about. Okay, then. And why all this talk about numismatisms? Huh, you're having problems dude. And magic. I'm just <laughs> making fun of you. Uh, why all this oh, talk thanks. about the money? Well, we'll see here why the money is important and keeping track of the serial numbers. Well, the FBI, however they were recorded, took the list of uh, serial numbers, and they delivered that to any place Cooper or anyone who stole a bunch of money may have tried to pass them. This took place about a month after his escape. Places like banks and other financial institutions, gambling establishments, of course, you're going to want to put that all out of red, right? Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. 50-50, though, that might be exciting. Uh, that's also, I, I know that sounds like a joke, but some people think maybe he didn't care about the money. Anyway, uh, pretty much any place that had large amounts of cash. And then they sent this list of serial numbers to law enforcement across the globe. Maybe he's going to want to take off to uh, sunny Europe or someplace uh, far away in a tropical location. They don't know. Uh, They had no idea how far he could have gotten if he's not picked up soon. So uh, at that point, John N. Mitchell, the U.S. Attorney General at the time, made the serial numbers public early the next year, 1972. So now... Those numbers are all out. So as you can see the investigation going, they probably want to keep that secret in case they pop up. They're reported by a bank. Now it's like, well, nothing's really popping up. So let's just make this public. Let's have everybody check their bills. Maybe he's passing them person to person. You don't know. The airline now, Northwest Orient, offered to pay a reward of 15% of any recovered ransom money up to a maximum of $25,000. But by 1975, when none of the authentic bills had turned up yet, Global Indemnity, Northwest Orient Insurance Company, paid out their $180,000 on the loss claim. So uh, they finally had to uh, cough that money up. Uh, again, back then, significant amount, but nothing's jiving. No no ransom money's popping up anywhere here. Uh, the Oregon Journal newspaper offered a reward of $1,000 to the first person to turn in a $20 bill with a matching serial number to them or the FBI. And they also reprinted the list of numbers. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer offered $5,000. Several bills with serial numbers that were close, but not an exact match were turned in. So by late November of 1974, the rewards were rescinded. Close but no cigar. And according to the
3: research I found, um, and in more than one place, I saw sources say that no one thought that the banks were even looking after about six months. It just was too much work yeah. and they didn't care anymore. And, it, you know, so got to get on with life.
2: Yeah, it's not even, uh, it's not really that computerized back then. Right. Okay, nothing's scanning these things like a robot. This is uh, people looking at bills. However, uh, that did work later at another famous ransom case.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But for now, Nothing is being found, but then on February 10th, 1980, some of the ransom money was found. Hmm. Brian Ingram, who was eight years old at the time, was camping with his family on a stretch of beach on the Columbia River known as Tina or Tina Bar, like a sandbar. And I said Tina twice because it's often spelt T-E-N-A or T-I-N-A like the common name. This spot is downstream from Vancouver, Washington, about nine miles and about 20 miles southwest of the town of Ariel. What Brian found were two packs with $120 bills each and a third packet consisting of 90 $20 bills, still bound with rubber bands, which was the same configuration handed to Cooper. $5,800 total. And you can see the photos uh, of these, this money posted everywhere online. Uh, we actually even have it in our own photo galleries for the web pages for these episodes. And the money is greatly deteriorated, but the FBI was able to positively ID the bills as part of the ransom money package. Pretty exciting, huh? Yeah.
3: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Paula. Now back to the show.
2: Okay, so now we got this uh, statement from Brian from the Tina Barr page of the DB Cooper Forum website. That's got a lot of great stuff. You could tell it's a labor of love by some enthusiasts. Here, Brian Ingram describes finding the small portion of the ransom money uh, he apparently made these statements while at PCGS, which is a banknote and coin grading company. They're like a third-party authorization place. If you have some pristine or collectible bills and coins, they will verify them. So uh, as I say here about banknote grading, PCGS is proud to launch PCGS Banknote as the premier third-party certification service for paper currency. Hmm. And why don't you read what Brian had to say about him being eight years old and, and uh, finding something pretty cool on the beach? I was
3: eight years old and on vacation.
2: He did not sound like that. Oh, okay. I was eight years old and on
3: vacation with my parents on February 10th, 1980, when I found about $5,800 of the ransom money along the banks of the Columbia River near Vancouver, Washington. We were going to make a fire along the riverbank. I was on my hands and knees, smoothing out the sand with my right arm, and I uncovered three bundles of money just below the surface. My uncle thought we should throw it in the fire. Well, his family turned the money over to the FBI, and eventually the FBI returned 25 bills to them along with dozens of fragments that contained little or no trace of serial numbers. Most of the notes have lightly written initials of FBI agents who inventoried and examined the items soon after they were discovered by Ingram. Mm. And now, according to New York Magazine and People Magazine, in 1986, the FBI kept 14 bills as evidence and divided the remaining bills equally between Brian Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurance company, presumably Global Indemnity. Ingram made about $37,000 in 2008 when he sold 15 of his bills at an auction. Wow. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty good investment, right? A lot better than the face value, yeah. The FBI brought in the Portland State University geologist, Dr. Leonard Palmer, to analyze the sandbar where the money was found, and he found that between the 1971 hijacking and the 1980 money find, the Columbia River was dredged, and sand had been deposited on Tina Bar in 1974. Palmer's report determined that the money was in a layer of top sand laid down by the dredging. This implied the money was perhaps somewhere else upstream for years before coming to rest on Tina Bar. Dr. Palmer found four different layers of earth in the area where the ransom money was found. An upper active layer of six to eight inches of reworked beach sand, which contained the recovered money, along with some new soda pop cans and other non-rusted debris, not severely damaged, rusted, or aged. This is an upper active layer of sand recently laid down, which is currently being worked by the river and natural forces. Such layers are typically sterile, which helps explain the survival of the money in this layer. Then, a post-dredging cross-bedded layer a clay lump sand layer, and an older sand layer. This pre-dredging layer is uniform in texture and composition and is light in color, deposited prior to 1974. Okay, interesting. Palmer felt that at the height and in the layer found, the money was deposited probably within a year or so of discovery and more than four years after the dredging in 74. He added that he felt certain this was not a case of the money having worked its way up through the post-dredging sand to the upper active layer. He felt certain the upper active layer and the cross-bedded layer below were two distinct layers, and the money was confined to the upper active layer only. Palmer based this on three facts. One, the money was rounded on its corners, which is uh, caused by the flow of water and perhaps tumbling en route. Two, the money was remarkably well-preserved. The upper active layer of sand on beaches is sterile, as we said a few minutes ago, and one of the best preservatives of any soil. Signs of rubber bands were still in place, around the money, although they were badly deteriorated, and all that fits with preservation in an upper layer of sterile sand. Money would have lasted no more than a year in nature unless protected. Mm. And three, the money was found only in the surface
2: layer, and none was found in the post-dredging sand below. Well, that's a pretty interesting conclusion there. And again, that comes from the D.B. Cooper website forum. And what's interesting is that now we've got science looking into this and and an actual geologist looking at this stuff, trying to determine how did this money get there? Because we still don't really know. But this is what FBI agent Larry Carr had to say about the money find. But he was one of the principal investigators here on the case in the more modern era here. Quote, there is nothing that points to the money arriving at its location by hand. If it did not get there by human hands, then it had to get there by natural means. From the condition and position of the found money, we know it had to have been protected and altogether upon beaching at Tina's bar. That means the money stayed in the bag, which we then can conclude Cooper lost it upon jumping or landing or walking through the woods. All due respect to Special Agent Carr,
3: <laughs> yes. there's
2: a, some assumptions being made here
3: that I might have some questions about later on in this series. Oh, dear. So
2: there's another former agent in charge, and that was Ralph P. Himmelsbach from the Portland FBI field office, and also the author of a book that a lot of this information is taken from, Norjack, The Investigation of D.B. Cooper. You see the wiki entry, which is really thorough and and, uh, helped us structure the shows. Also, uh, a lot of sources uh, you'll see around uh, the Internet is taken from his book because, yes, he was the special agent in charge at the time. And then he retired and wrote a book.
3: Yeah, and I will just say I have not read um, his book, and he uh, passed away not too long ago, actually. But right, and I, I haven't read his book. I did read a couple of books associated with this case. But one thing I, I did see him interviewed in uh, several pieces of media that we consumed uh, ramping up to this. And this is—I just want to say this is a no-nonsense guy. He's all about facts. Yeah. He doesn't care about anything else that can't contribute to solving the case. He, he he described one book that was a mix between nonfiction and fiction about one of the possible suspects as mostly filler. That's what he, you know, because for him, it's <laughs> yeah. like, I need to make direct connections. But the other thing that I thought was interesting about Himmelsbach is that he's also, and and it may be of the time period that he was from, he's very much looking for a specific profile of a hardened criminal with a long legacy of activity yeah. as opposed to what some people think, you know, the other people look, and this is something that will come up again with me on the themes in terms of Cooper, the other idea of a civilian who snapped or a guy who just pulled this right. amazing one off a one hit wonder. Himmelsbach did not seem to be on board with that at all. He's like, no, we're we're looking for X, Y, and Z. This is the kind of person we're looking for. So I just want to say like, in terms of uh, FBI, yeah, he, he was uh, kind of old school and not that there's anything wrong yeah. with that. I don't know which way's right or wrong. I'm
2: not a cop and, or, you know, <laughs> but like that's just his, always, his
3: disposition. I'm saying.
2: I'm sorry. I should add this on a placard, but I always think of the, the line from uh, the usual suspects, which yeah. we have a section for usual suspects down here to a cop. There's no mystery to the street. If you, if you think uh, you find a dead guy, do you think his brother did it? You'll find out you're right. Most yeah. of the time. So right. they can't rely on speculation, but for, Himmelsbach, I would say, yeah, he, he's cut and dry, just like you said. He's going to look at just what shows up and analyze that. And uh, and as it said before, and another source, that uh, it's not a romantic idea with him. There's nobody riding off into the sunset with, at the time, $1.7 million. No, and he, and he frequently refers to this suspect
3: that Cooper as, you know, he, he doesn't like to see him romanticized at all. He right. refers to him as a common criminal or a thug or or that's, yeah. and that's how he wants to see him.
2: And, and he may very well be right. Well, what his thinking was about the money find, the condition of the money cited, this comes from an excerpt from the New York Times from February 22nd, 1980. And the little passage from the, the clipping here says, the agent said that, that's talking about Himmelsbach. Based on the tattered condition of the money, he felt morally certain, quote unquote the money had been exposed ever since the hijacking, rather than having been buried by the hijacker, and added, this lends support to the conclusion. It doesn't prove it, that it was likely he didn't make it, and he is lying somewhere near where he fell. Still, Mr. Himmelsbach acknowledged that only the discovery of a body that can be identified positively as that of Cooper, or conclusive evidence that he survived, will end the mystery. So, yeah, like I said, cut and dry. It's like, look, it doesn't prove it, doesn't not prove it. And we won't know till somebody finds his bones or finds a 90-year-old man, 90-plus-year-old man at this point and can positively ID this person. But that's it. Well, what else, interestingly, was found at the same site and at the same layer were two soda cans. This goes back to the, the blog for DB. Uh, Palmer found two cans of Sioux City Sarsaparilla soda, at about the same depth as the money. According to Palmer, and that's the geologist, the cans were not in the sand long due to no damage from the elements. Palmer believes the cans got on the riverbanks not long after being found. That company, Sioux City Sarsaparilla, I'm taking it, uh, started this line in 1973, so it's afterwards. It's doubtful the cans were in the sand that long or rust would be visible on the cans. It's hard to say if they came in with the tides and settled close together being the same brand. A third can was also found, but Palmer didn't say much about the can. This was a orange soda made by Nesbitt's. One could only speculate and believe that it's possible the cans were buried after drinking them because this area was known for outdoor activity like fishing. So maybe somebody drank the sodas and just like, "Eh, I'll just ditch these here.
3: There was a guy that fished there every day every day and everyone who ever went there at any time that was a local saw that guy there every day
2: right right but more on that later again why go on and on and on about the money well the reason is is that the only other piece of evidence found that seems to be definitely connected to cooper and discovered in the time period between 1978 and 2017 get this this is a find it's an instruction placard found in November 1978 by a deer hunter approximately 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, next to a logging road. Castle Rock, is it's about 30 miles northwest of the initial presumed landing zone area, just south of Ariel, Washington, and Lake Mervyn, and maybe 50 miles northwest of the updated, estimated possible landing zone near the Washougal River drainage area. That was uh, Hunter Carol
3: Hicks who found that.
2: Yeah, well, still, Castle Rock, it's still basically in Flight 305's general flight path. And guess what the card was? How to open the back stairs, right? <laughs> yes. Wasn't Printed, that what it was? Printed on the placard were instructions for lowering the aft air stairs on a 727. He probably was reading them on the way down. He was hey, like, let the me next, see that. Next oh. time. Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, and you know, according to the FBI, they estimated that where that was found was about six minutes of flying time from the
2: point where Cooper had jumped out of the aircraft. Ah, wait a second. Okay, so he jumps out. Does he take the placard with him, or he he snapped it off the Maybe wall? Maybe the
3: wind whipped it off the wall, or and it just yeah. was, you know, it would be, in that case, flotsam, not jetsam. Right. <laughs> right right because flotsam falls off jetsam you put it off on purpose like with boats anyway i don't know if you call it that with airplanes but if you put it off the boat on purpose you you jettisoned it it's jetsam if you if it falls off the boat while it's sinking or whatever it's flotsam and it floats not necessarily floats it actually doesn't really necessarily have
2: to do with floating but
3: well okay (laughs) we're really wowing (laughs)
2: people tonight (laughs) well uh i'm amazed either of us are still awake at this point (laughs) But these are important because that's it, folks. You got tattered money and you got a placard from a plane. But that would be such a cool find. And when you come upon that, uh, you might know the story, but somebody who finds that, the the hunter in in the woods, the first thought going through your head, like, what the heck? Oh, my goodness. I wonder, I wonder. And then you, you know, you make a call to the FBI, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was a placard for lowering the aft air stairs then in 2017, two more pieces of possible evidence were discovered by a team of volunteer investigators. As mentioned in a New York Daily News article by Megan Cerullo titled, FBI accepts new evidence in D.B. Cooper hijacking cold case. Uh, First, a parachute strap that could be several decades old was found. Then in August of that year, a piece of foam was found that potentially stress out there could be part of cooper's backpack however these two newer items can't be confirmed as being directly linked to cooper but they're exciting finds
3: yeah it's kind of thin
2: for me but i don't know a lot about these two i heard about the foam somewhere i don't think i
3: knew about the parachute strap
2: i think officially well they think it's a a parachute strap and and uh, i don't know if it's dated i don't know but You're right about that, is that it's pretty cool that you found something that might be connected, but you can't officially connect it. So the official stance is that, yes, those are possibles. We'll take a look at them. But you know what we have to talk about now? If we're going
3: to talk about this a little bit earlier than this, 2008, a part of two parachutes was found near Amboy, Washington. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to read you this little section right here. This is from the Mountain News, Washington. Mm -hmm. Great Mm -hmm. website for Cooper information. Just tons of, it's a a great publication. We have links to it. But this is one of the uh, stories there. A discarded parachute buried near D.B. Cooper's probable landing zone was found in 2008 near Amboy, Washington. After some investigation that included the opinion of Cooper parachute packer, Earl Cossey, the FBI Mm. determined it was not the Cooper parachute but probably from a military pilot who bailed out of an airplane in the same area in 1945. Maybe. (laughs) There are problems with this scenario, though. No one at the FBI has said for certain the found parachute isn't Cooper's, not even Earl Cossey. They use words such as highly unlikely, even though they admit the style of parachute that was found could be from a Navy Backpack 6 container, the same container that Cooper jumped with from the plane. However, the parachute found near Amboy was missing the harness and the container. Only the silk was buried. And there is no indication the military pilot buried it. According to an old article in the Seattle Post Intelligencer, the pilot built a fire to keep warm after he reached the ground and then walked out to safety nine miles in the morning. It's doubtful Mm. he would have bothered burying it during the night. And even if he had, why would he separate the container and harness from the parachute? He did not walk out with these items either. He left the entire package behind, yet no container or harness was ever found, even after additional digging in the area by the fbi so Mm. that's an interesting thing and there's actually a section two in uh in one of the books that i read called into the blast that talks about this uh this Mm. is this the true story of db cooper into the blast that's written by uh skip porteous and robert blevins who comes up frequently and he has a footnote here where he says no one really knows where cooper landed although there have been some good guesses the Woodland area, which is a town, is very small, but so is Ariel, Washington, or perhaps the small village of Amboy, the place where a buried parachute was unearthed in 2008. That's, and that's all he really says about that there. But that parachute right. is of interest. And theres I'll just tell you now, there's a forum called the DZ for Drop Zone tons mm-hmm. of stuff on there about D.B. Cooper. Yeah. We'll have a link to that for him. I mean, it's just on and on and on. These guys all are way more into it than we've been able to get. <laughs> but there's yeah. a whole thread I remember reading with speculation about the color of the chute, the color of what was found, the color of what he took, the color of the silk that was left on the plane, and also about Kasi not necessarily clearly remembering what he packed or where he got it. So there's just all kinds of, it's a mishmash of information. So it's hard to wow. connect that. But it is interesting that just the silk was buried because to me, if he came down and he had uh, problem stowing the money it makes sense that maybe he would have uh separated the silk from the container to put money in the container to hike out with
2: well you know what these things happen Yeah, uh, and i mean finding of strange things when you go looking for flight 19 you find another airplane similar you weren't intending to, to find yeah weird stuff happens yeah and stuff it's missing it's like well, you weren't uh You weren't expecting to find another plane of the same make, and you do, and it's like, wait, was this missing? I, you know, again, it's like Amelia Earhart. It's like all these things that go disappearing, strange things are found in their stead. That happened on an episode of uh, UFO Hunters, I believe. They were trying to look at USOs. uh, That's the old show, uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, Yes, Bill Burns, right? Yes, Bill Burns. And uh, and it just looked like a lot of fun. I would love to just hang out at that office and shoot the breeze and go on adventures. But they went to Catalina Island looking for a uh, something that may have downed a plane. Some USO that may have affected a plane that uh, was reported uh, being down. They They take a dive. They find another plane that had gone down. Not the one they were looking for. That's my point is that you go looking for stuff or when, when people are actively looking for one thing, you end up finding something else that is very similar, not maybe exactly the same. Yes. Maybe that's what's at Buka. I don't know. Well, the, the reason that this is important is that uh, there are only two pieces of evidence found outside of the aircraft, which are the the samples of ransom money from Tina Bar, the Columbia River, and the Air Stair placard. That's it. That's all people have really got to go on at, at this point.
3: It's less than MH370. Not much coming back on that one either.
2: Oh, uh, well, wing though, and
3: some barnacles, right? I think so. I'm not positive that wing was positively identified, but you that know, washed up on the, uh, the, the really French do uh, that show. Right. Yeah, we got to do that
2: show. <laughs> it's interesting. You find a lot more questions than answers. That's what we've got here. But so that's why there's so much scrutiny on these. Uh, well, not even the placard, really the money. That's it. That's going to yield the most answers maybe or just generate more questions like the
0: paranormal in general
3: let's get back to the show.
2: So now we've heard a little bit about the FBI investigator's stance on the findings and the evidence so far. But before we take a look at their conclusions and profiling of possible suspects, let's review the other clues and leads first as it will determine what's most likely with each of the more popular suspects. Well, the FBI considers the
3: descriptions of Cooper given by the flight attendants, Florence Schaffner and Tina Mucklow, and the resulting composite sketches to be accurate and reliable. Remember, they spent the most amount of time with Cooper in a situation where they were undoubtedly taking him in. Also remember that they were interviewed soon after, both on the same night and in different cities, and gave nearly identical descriptions. So did people who encountered him on the ground. Uh the official general description is as follows and again this is from special agent uh Lawrence Carr or Larry Carr. He led the investigation team for the FBI in the Seattle field office from 2006 until the case was uh more or less closed in 2016. Although I did read about a new agent who maybe he's mm-hmm. just a liaison but uh we can we can drill down on that later. Quote, the two flight attendants who spent the most time with him on the plane were interviewed separately the same night in separate cities and gave nearly identical descriptions, says Carr. Mm -hmm. They both said he was about 5'10 to 6 feet, 170 to 180 pounds, in his mid-40s with brown eyes. People on the ground who came into contact with him also gave very similar descriptions.
2: Uh, Yes, and you're forgetting a, uh, maybe a, romantic twist. I don't know they said he was he had piercing brown eyes yes. and swarthy skin. Swarthy skin. Uh, I'm not sure where that came up, but that's yeah. you'll see that in some descriptions too.
3: There was only three significant items of evidence on the plane after he jumped. The black tie which had a mother of pearl tie clip on it. Uh, and that was a clip on tie and eight right. Raleigh brand filtered cigarette butts. The public didn't know about the tie and the tie clip until the publishing of a book called DB Cooper the Real McCoy in 1991 by author Bernie Rhodes. The cigarette butts have since been lost. Also lost to date are the remaining $9,710 bills. None of them have turned up anywhere, but their serial numbers are online for public view, so you can check the ones in your possession to see if any match. Have you ever tried the Where's George database? That's pretty great. I have done that, <laughs> have you, but I've never had a single that? bill come back. I've, I did it on, I even bought a little stamp, and I... Uh, to stamp it, which I guess is a uh,
2: federal offense to deface uh, the dollar. Possibly. Well, you're not ripping it up. But I yeah, put them you're... in
3: the database. I think I still have a profile there, and, and none have ever been entered again, I don't think. I should go back. I haven't logged in in about 10 years.
2: Oh, I have. Uh, yeah, I have. I've yeah. uh, I've seen mine uh, show up before. Um, oh, really? Well, after me. Yeah. yeah I yeah. just make a note never... of it. You, you You log it. You make a note of it. You see where it travels. It's pretty fascinating, I think. Um, But here's something interesting. Uh, According to that link, I think, from the D.B. Cooper uh, forum website, that bill certification place, PCGS, that I mentioned earlier, the Mm -hmm. banknote third-party certification service, they apparently found some serial numbers that are not part of that original set that was recorded. So Uh that was an interesting point is that whoever did it, the C-First Bank or maybe the FBI to some stories, They didn't get them all, but then the money was confirmed as as being Cooper's. Again, there's so many little weird, odd things that don't line up or contradict each other. If that's not the case, say that uh, C-First did accurately record every serial number that was given to Cooper, but there's some serial numbers in this pack that are not with that, and that has been accurately noted by PCGS. Where do those come from? Ah. Did somebody find those, slip those in? Were they mixed up with another batch of money by right. someone else right. or by Cooper? You see, every little thing turns it into a different story. Uh, just to give you a quick note, I have entered
3: $31 worth of bills into Weir's store <laughs> It's the first time I've logged in in well, several years. None of them have
2: hit back. Really? Yeah. Well, nobody's keeping up with it. Nobody
3: cares about my money.
2: Anyway, there are so many variables. I'm about to describe one that is... It is a sad and horrible note and it was something in connection to the original uh, manhunt and the massive search that was done by the FBI and the military. A body was found and this is mentioned in retired FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach's book and also an article in the Colombian newspaper. This story is profiled and also on a webpage for waymarking.com. We'll have that and in, in, I think that's a... a orienteering club activity website, I believe. Well, uh, there was a crime on March ninth, 1972. And I'll just read the entry from the waymarking site here. A body was found at the old Cedar Creek Grist Mill in a remote wooded area in northern Clark County. A woman searching for old bottles spotted the body partially covered by debris. The corpse attracted nationwide attention until it was determined... The body was that of a young woman and not the missing jetliner hijacker D.B. Cooper. The unidentified body was found in an area that had been included in an intensive search by the FBI and Army for D.B. Cooper, the man believed to have parachuted from a hijacked jetliner with the ransom money. The hijacker is believed to have parachuted in the area east of Woodland. The body was located at the bottom of a 25-foot silo-like structure that is built into the side of the grist mill and had been part of the water turbine. So yes, this is at the old Cedar Creek Grist Mill in Woodland, Washington. Sadly, she was murdered. Uh, By Monday, April 3rd, the Grist Mill body had been identified as 18-year-old Barbara Ann Derry, a Clark College student from the Goldendale, Washington area. Barbara Ann had enrolled at Clark College in January for the winter quarter Uh, but not for the spring quarter, and she had rented an apartment in the Central Park neighborhood, but uh, had moved out in mid-February, presumably to return to Goldendale, but no one had reported her missing. Now, what's the point of us describing that? Well, one, a massive FBI, gigantic military search is taking place all around this area. Nobody checks the grist mill this woman and maybe her friend. I think we're looking for old bottles, uh, which is a, a pastime a lot of people do. And they poke around this place and they find this body. And it's not out in the middle of the woods. It's not in the middle of a, th- a copse of trees or, or on a craggy uh, bluff somewhere. It is in a structure that should have been checked but wasn't, or if it was, it wasn't thoroughly. The other thing is is that poor Barbara and Derry went missing and nobody noticed for whatever reason her friends didn't say anything, uh, family didn't notice, nobody made mention of it, and uh, she had to be identified by other means. So there's two things here. If Cooper was in the woods and he, he didn't make it, he's, his body's just out there somewhere in the woods, well, it's easy to overlook. Secondly, is that whoever Cooper was, he went missing for at least a little while, and nobody noticed him gone. If he didn't make it out of the woods, then he's gone forever. And somebody, he must know somebody unless he was a total loner. And again, that happens. That's uh, our first podcast episode. It was about, who's got Yvette Vickers. Yvette Vickers. Passed away six months in her house by herself. No one noticed she had passed away. So these weird things happened. But that's why I wanted to mention this earlier in that you think, like, to your question towards the beginning of the episode... If he was just a body somewhere, what do you think that means? That nothing was found ever? Is he just, again, in such a, uh, hung up in a tree? Is he in such a dense wood and underbrush that he just gets swallowed up by the forest and that's it? Or did he make it out of there and die somewhere else or live another life? No, that's a good question.
3: And, and by yeah. the way, uh, east of Woodland, about 20, yeah. about 30 minutes east of Woodland is Amboy where that parachute was found. Exactly, and a little bit more than halfway between the two is Ariel, where they mm. celebrate DB Cooper Day every year because they think he came <laughs> right. down there.
2: So yeah. we're we're in the hood there. We're in the hood. We're in the hood. But as I said earlier, uh, pilot William Scott thought he his calculations were off that he was actually flying uh, further east, I believe. And uh, it's so Lake Merwin is one area uh, just south of there, and that includes the uh, aerial area. Uh, right. The other one is washugal river area so if you look at a map you'll see these places differ but that's a lot of ground to cover if you're off by a little bit with your calculations yeah and it's very dense and uh, some of it's uh, not very accessible so it makes a big deal uh where one body if he didn't make it is now stashed and may never be found
3: Well, coming back to the FBI's findings and disclosures there, they actually found three DNA samples from Cooper's black tie in 2001, one large sample and two small samples, making up a partial DNA profile. And uh, they made this disclosure in 2007. However, FBI Special Agent Fred Gutt, G-U-T-T, stated that it was difficult to draw any firm conclusions from the samples because they couldn't verify that the samples actually came from Cooper. The FBI also disclosed to the public previously classified evidence such as other composite sketches, details and facts on the case, and a photo of Cooper's $20 plane ticket on uh, Northwest from Portland to Seattle. They also released information on the parachutes. Cooper had a choice of two primary chutes, and we talked about this a little bit in part one. Mm -hmm. He didn't choose the professional sport parachute, which would have been better. He chose the older chute. He also chose the demonstration parachute from the two reserve parachutes, which actually was sewn shut, didn't have a working ripcord, and was intended to train skydiving students. By the way, and I'm yeah. sure some skydiving people are going to email us. It's beyond me how you train with a parachute that doesn't open and is sewn shut.
2: Just for the <laughs> well, record, in the class, look, you know, if you pull the rip, now you've got a, a huge, a big ball of silk uh, in the classroom. It's meant to train for other stuff. Okay. So, Well, it just for seems people- <laughs> like
3: one of those things you might accidentally jump out of a plane with and not, it's not going to help you. So that's, I'm just saying, why is this even in uh, this scenario?
2: We're going to get to more reasons for that and maybe why it was a mix-up uh, or some people thinking it wasn't, but there are a lot of things that happened by accident here. So the point being is that, we'll repeat this again. And again, I, I need repeating because I often forget these details, but uh, if Cooper was really the the cracker jack, uh, skydiving paratrooper, man of action, he wouldn't have grabbed that one because there were signs on it. Now, I don't know if it was totally labeled or as you'll see in some military canvas things where it's spray painted or it's got uh, a patch that's sewn onto it telling you what it is, but as it's reported, there were clear signs to an experienced skydiver that this is a dummy shoot it's a practice shoot you're not going to want to take that one with you and also to clear that up and you confirm with me people might see this uh, who haven't gone skydiving that uh you know when you're not tandem jumping with somebody on your back is the main shoot the reserve shoot you'll see kind of a, a pouch that's in front yeah the back one doesn't open the reserve shoots the one in front and right. that's what we're talking about i'm not sure if we cleared that up before but the one in front is the reserve shoot right and so, right. what Cooper was asking for was two primary shoots, the big ones in the back, and two backup shoots, the one you wear in the front, right, yeah, that's a weird again, that's another weird thing I can't get over like why did he why did he take that one if he knew what he was doing? Maybe he had a plan for it, who knows? But, as I said, yeah, an experienced skydiver is as the authorities would say, like they would notice the markings on it, that it was a demo unit. Cooper used the other backup working parachute to cut cords from it. And the FBI thinks, again, like you said before, to tie the money bag shut or secure.
3: Yeah, because he didn't get the backpack he wanted, the knapsack.
2: Right. And he was a little miffed about that, right? Yeah. Because now he's like, he's having to improvise. Right. In a short amount of time. Plus, he must have some idea. He's not going to wait all the way until they get to Reno to jump out. Right. So the other part is that the cords that he cannibalized from the other one, is probably what Tina Mucklow saw him wrapping around himself. So he uses some of the cord to secure the bag uh, with the money in it. And the other part, he's actually wrapping to himself because it could be kind of hard to hold on to. Although I think he's seen a lot of cartoons. He's just holding the, it's like he's got a briefcase to hold the handle.
3: Yeah. And I, and I remember reading, God, now I can't remember where this was. It couldn't be factual because nobody could know this, but I remember right. reading that what you would do is you would, jump out holding it and then you would release it the money the bundle yeah. so that
2: it would be below you connected to you but below you and hit the ground uh, before you interesting yeah. i do wonder about that when i go to make my leaping getaway yes somewhere i'm With not that. gonna rob anybody they just yeah i don't you know yeah i don't want that on my record I'm trying to keep my uh my decent credit score going. So uh but I think one day if I get just too decrepit, I'll just go missing in a four one one kind of thing. So, <laughs> letting you know right now. Yeah. Well, one last thing about the uh the parachutes, as we stated earlier. You could think uh maybe the FBI gave him the dummy shoot, thinking that uh, well, if he takes that one, that's uh we'll just have to go scoop him up. Right. But according to them, they wanted to state that they did not intentionally give Cooper the demonstration parachute, uh, hoping he'd choose it and it did kill him. They said it was mistakenly given to them during the rush to get four from the skydiving school. Well, and that would have been a colossal mistake
3: because the FBI, as far as they knew and as far as anyone knew, might have thought that he was requesting the extra shoots because he was going to take someone with him. And if he was going to take a flight attendant or a crew member with him, how could they know whether, who would get the dummy shoot? So it does make sense to me that they wouldn't have intentionally done that
2: because they Mm -hmm. had
3: to be thinking, oh, he's going to make somebody jump with him. Right. And they're not going to like sacrifice like a random person.
2: That goes into, uh, again, part of the profiling is that uh, why the four shoots was that to make them think, uh, who knows? He could take people with him. Well cuz if he asks for 1 think about it if he asks for 1 they sabotage
3: it and he jumps right. out and he's dead. If right. he asks for 2 you know I don't know I think when by by increasing the numbers he makes them think maybe he's going to take the whole crew with him or and then blow up the plane or something. Yeah. So they can't take the risk of giving a faulty shoot to them. Right. Not knowingly anyway in my opinion. So, the FBI announced that a group of specialist citizen volunteers, later known as the Cooper Research Team, was formed in March of 2009. And this consisted of a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle. Uh, his name's Tom Kaye, a metallurgist named Alan Stone, and a scientific illustrator named Carol Abrazinkas. And uh, part of the team helping was veteran Cooper researcher and Brian Ingram, who found the Columbia River bank ransom money 30 years earlier at the time of the group's formation. Now, Tom K was usually searching for dinosaur bones in Wyoming, but he and his team were now using GPS and satellite maps and technology like electron microscopes to examine things like pollen on Cooper's tie that could be traced to a specific region of the country. Lycopodium spores, also known as ground pines or creeping cedars, were found on the tie, but could be from the plant or a pharmaceutical product. Kay also conducted soil and water samples from the site on the Columbia River, among other tests and calculations, like retracing the flight path to get it more exact and floating a stack of dollar bills on a fishing line to confirm if the money could have floated downstream or if it was more likely it was buried by Cooper. Now, using advanced technology not available in the 70s, they were able to also identify trace particles on Cooper's tie with electron microscopy, like pure titanium, unalloyed, which was rare in the 70s. Back then, it was mainly used in chemical companies and metal production facilities, so Cooper may have been an engineer, technician, or manager at a specialized company that dealt with titanium in fabrication or scrap, and someone who'd be wearing a tie at one of those facilities. As recently as January 2017, the Cooper research team also found traces of bismuth aluminum and rare earth minerals like cerium and strontium sulfide, which were rarely used in the 1970s, except for places like Boeing with their supersonic transport development project. So he could have been a Boeing employee or worked for Portland companies like Teledyne and Tektronix, which manufactured cathode ray tubes for monitors. That's not Mm. the only thing this team found, though. They found something that the FBI missed When they first reported about the dredging in the area, that would have put Mm -hmm. a timestamp on when the money could have arrived. But we're going to save that for the newly created and (laughs) recently invented part three.
2: (laughs) Yes, which will end up on a money bank somewhere, never to be heard, or in your feeds.
3: That's going to wrap up part two of our three-part series on D.B. Cooper. Originally, we were planning to keep it to two parts, but we were running long, and it's three in the morning. So we're going to release part three, commercial-free,
2: next week. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin.
0: Hi, I'm Sam Clements. Hi, I'm James (laughs) Coppett. Hello, (sighs) malpractice.
3: Too tinny, too echoey, I don't know. And... E-T-S. I listen to astonishing legends. Our show is edited
2: by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends,
3: where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good
2: night.